Right. Okay. Thank you, Stuart. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Matt and, and Phil for, for leading us in, in worship earlier. It was um, wonderful. So my name is, is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders at Real Life Church, and it's my privilege to, to share the word with you this evening. I'm married to Becky. We have three children, Dole, who's 18. He's at university, first year at the moment, reading physics. Caitlin, who's 17 in year 12, and, and Isaac, who's 10 and, and in year five. And um, I, I realized that there's two other important members of our family that I never mentioned. Uh, one, our cat, Perry. And um, if you're wondering why he has such a strange name, if, if you, you're familiar with Phineas and Ferb, the animated series, he is named for one of the characters in Phineas and Ferb, Perry the Platypus. And then we've got a newcomer to the family, uh, Luna, who is a, a dog who's joined us from Romania. And um, I wasn't sure why she was named Luna. The kids decided that that was a good name for her. I realized that it's Spanish for moon, but um, she joined us. She's very shy and nervous um, and her true character is starting to come out. And I think the name fits, you know, lunatic. Etc. So yeah, we've got we've got some crazy pets in the house, and we're just loving life at the moment. Um, being able to spend a little bit more time at home than I would normally be doing. Um, Becky as well, and being able to to bond with our children and um, our, our animals. But we so miss being with all of you guys face to face. And we uh, this. This week, I, I had some of the guys from Life Group in our garden, and we just had a little bit of a get together, had some fire and some drink and, and a couple of snacks and just talked. And it was just so good to, to see each other face to face, 3D people, for real, that you have something in common with. Um, so yeah, I'd encourage you all to, to find ways of making the most of the easing of restrictions as we come out um, as as is, is fitting for you. Now, for those of you that have been around a while, you'd know that it's, it's kind of a tradition for me to share a little bit of a story about my past or, or something that I, I love doing. Um, and, and that's normally been about Port Elizabeth or surfing or, or my friends or, or uh, something like that. But something else that I really do enjoy is movies. Now, I'm not a I'm not a movie buff, so I don't like, you know, I don't get into the, the minutia of the detail and, and try and understand the, the narrative and, and the plot points and who, who the director is and, and what makes the movie amazing. And the truth is, I kind of really don't like movies that feel like real life. Um, you know, I could, I could get on my bike on a rainy day and ride along the canal and under Spaghetti Junction anytime I want to. I don't need that when I'm watching a movie. I like something that captures my imagination and, and makes me step out of this world for a, a little while. I like action adventure. I, I really enjoy the, the Bourne series. Um, you may think this is bad, but The Saint with Val Kilmer, I really love that. Um, even worse, Mission Impossible. I think they're great, great movies. I love the superhero movies. I think the, the, the whole canon of, of Marvel movies is, um, is brilliant. But I especially like the big fantasy epics like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Cue the theme tune going on in your head right now. And Narnia, or, or even some of the old classics like Braveheart or, or Gladiator. 
And I guess there's something in all of them about people who seem to accomplish great things for humankind. And, you know, maybe that's it. But really, I think it's because there are glimpses in all of them of the victory of Christ. I, I love movies that make me want to go out and take on the world. I love movies even more when they remind me of the assurance that Jesus has already taken on the ultimate enemy and, and won. And we're going to look at that a little bit tonight. So as I go through the introduction, we're going to be in John chapter 19. And I'm going to start in verse 28 and go through to, to 30. So if you want to get there in the meantime, and, and we'll, we'll read that when, when I'm ready. Um, so, yeah, as you know, we're in our, our Easter sermon series, Seven Words. And we've been journeying from Christmas to the cross and this Easter period that we're in right now. And we've been looking at the, the words, phrases that, that Jesus spoke from the cross just before his death. These words are recorded for us by the gospel writers, by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, and by John. And there are seven in total, three in Luke, three in John, and one that is recorded by both Matthew and Mark. And these are, these are the seven words as a recap. Firstly, Father, forgive them. That's in Luke 23, verse 34. Secondly, today you will be with me in paradise. That's in Luke 23, verse 43. Thirdly, behold your mother. And that is in John 19, verse 27. Fourth is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's in Mark 15, 34, as well as Matthew 27, verse 46. And then the fifth one is our thirst, which is in John 19, verse 28, just before the one we're going to be looking at today, which is it is finished in John 19, verse 30. And then Jesus's final words, which Matt will uh, speak to us about next week is into your hands, I commit my spirit. And that's in Luke 23, verse 46. Now, these words that Jesus spoke are significant because they're the culmination of Jesus's earthly ministry. They like sum up what was achieved by Jesus's death on the cross. Uh, seven is a, a biblical number for completeness. So it's, it's really interesting that, that there are seven words recorded for us in the Gospels from Jesus, and it's worth us investigating the significance of those words and how they apply to our lives. We have the privilege of, of hearing Jesus's last words and discovering what was on his mind as he died. They reveal the heart of God. They reveal what the death on the cross achieved for us. They reveal what is important to God. And so we began the series looking at Jesus's first word, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we learned that Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice to pay the debt for sin, for our sin, even though we were still his enemies. And we are the ones who receive the forgiveness through that act. And then secondly, we we heard him say, today, you will be with me in paradise to the thief who was crucified next to him. And we learned that Jesus 
offers salvation to all who know that they are guilty and all who cry to him for mercy in that, that moment. And then we heard his words to John as he looked at John and his mother down from the cross. And he said to John, behold your mother. And we learned that Jesus died to create a new family, the church. Then fourthly, the words that Jesus spoke out to his father in heaven saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and then we learnt that Jesus bore the wrath of God. The whole wrath of God was thrown down upon him so that we wouldn't have to bear it. He was separated and uh, abandoned for the first time in eternity by his father so that we will never have to be. And then the fifth word was, I thirst. And that week we learned that suffering and God's being in control are not at odds, that Jesus suffered in, in every sense, but his suffering accomplished the greatest of victories. His suffering had meaning. If you, if you missed those, you can catch up online. You can go onto our website and the podcast links are, are all there. So tonight we have the sixth word from the cross, which is, is back to John's gospel. Um, and I'm just going to read it very quickly from verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A, full, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a, a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word in focus for us today is that bit in the middle at the beginning of verse 30. It is finished. What a, what a massive statement to make. As it is obvious that, that Jesus is right at the end. He is drawing his final breaths. He has suffered incredibly. He's, he has suffered physically. He has suffered emotionally. He has suffered mentally and spiritually. It, it would seem that despite his brave stand, he is about to fall victim to death, just like everyone else does. It seems that in the end, death does have the final say. His followers' hopes were dashed. The Pharisees were delighted. The Roman soldiers continued to mock and scorn. It seemed like the opportunity for a, a dramatic final scene, like in those movies I like watching, where the, the tables turn has disappeared. And in that moment, straight after sipping the sour wine and just before committing his life into God's hands, he says, it is finished. Now, before I carry on, I just want to step back a little bit and remind you 
about what crucifixion is, what it is is like. It it was the un, the, 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 the the cruelest form of punishment that that has ever been conceived of. It was used throughout the Roman Empire as a means of of terror. It was a, it was a way of of filling the subjects of the empire with dread and fear and keeping them in their place. It was considered so terrible a way to die that, that Roman citizens were exempt from it. It doesn't, didn't matter what a Roman did, they would never receive the sentence of crucifixion. It was just too terrible, too demeaning, too painful, too inhumane. There was even a, a new word that was invented to describe the physical suffering that it caused. And we use it today without even thinking about it. We, we, we say, oh, I stubbed my toe, it was excruciating. That is like the overstatement of the century. Stubbing your toe is not excruciating. That literally means out of the cross or from the cross. It was a kind of pain that needed a new word to describe the severity of it. Crucifixion was, was often preceded by flogging. And I'm sorry, but flogging, again, feels like an understatement. What was used was a whip with, with nine pieces of leather with pieces of bone and metal tied into it. And that was whipped across the back of, of the victim. And it would rip into the side and grab into the flesh and tear pieces of flesh out of the back of the victim and would very often in itself kill the, the, the person that was going to be crucified. The victim suffered not just the physical pain of, of that, but and having nails driven through their, their wrists and their feet and then being hoisted up, but also the humiliation of having it done publicly, standing on this cross, pinned to it, barely clothed, blood dripping down, and insults being hurled at you from passers-by that would just add to the shame. And often the victim took hours to die. And this was probably the worst thing about crucifixion is, is you'd, be, you'd be pinned against this cross with your feet standing on a tiny little platform with a nail through it. And you'd be doing all you could to keep your legs strong so that you could stand up. But at some point you tire. And so you drop your legs. And as you do so, your chest raises and it causes you to start suffocating. So you're forced again to lift yourself up on your legs. And it, it's, it's, that, that goes on for hours and hours and hours. And, and often what they would do is they'd break the legs of the victims if it was going on too long so that they would just suffocate and die. It was a terrible, terrible ordeal. And it now seemed that it has had its desired effect, not just of utterly destroying the man Jesus, but everything that he represented by belittling and shaming him as king of the Jews on a cross in public, a curse before all men. However, the statement, it is finished, was no surrender. It was not a, a final yielding of a, a beaten man saying, okay, okay, you've, you've won, just please put me out of my misery. You see, John records the words for us here. In the other gospels, the words are not recorded, but what they do say is that he let out a, 
a great shout in Matthew 27 verse 50 and Mark 15 verse 37. It says he let out a great shout and then he yielded his spirit to God. And most, most commentators agree that that loud shout was these words, or actually in the Greek, one word, tetelestai. It is finished. Tetelestai is not, it is finished as in I give up. It implies that all that is required has been accomplished. It means the mission is accomplished. It's, I have succeeded. It is that type of finished. It is an all is complete kind of finished. So when you combine the evidence of all of the gospels, what you have here is Jesus in the final throes of his death on the cross, letting out a loud and exuberant victory shout, tetelestai, tetelestai, and then dying willingly. Just imagine the scene. It must have, must have been dead quiet as everyone tried to comprehend what had just taken place. It is finished. What, what is finished? I mean, that has to be the question, right? Right now, he is the king, kneeling in the middle of the field, his dead soldiers all around, and he's about to lose his head. He is the lion who lies on the sacrificial altar as a dagger is plunging towards his heart. He is Isaac lying on a pile of wood. He is David hiding in a cave, running from Saul. He is Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. Right now he is Abraham, a man without a child who will be forgotten by history. What exactly is finished? That must have been what everyone was thinking. What mission have you completed? Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We, we know that he rises on the third day and that he spends 40 days with his followers and he ascends in his glorified body to be seated at the right hand of the Father. We can see how his death was not defeat but victory. We can see how that king, at the final moment, dealt a death blow to his enemy, that he is the lion that returns in the final battle, that he is a better David, that he is a better Joseph, that he is a better Abraham, a better Moses, and that his people will never forget, forget him and will continue to carry his name across the world until his return. We have hindsight and we get to see that. But in that moment, it must have been baffling, to say the least. And, you know, it is good for us to put ourselves in that moment, to set aside what we already know, the benefit of hindsight, and just imagine how it would have been for us to be standing at the foot of the cross when that was going on, whether we are his followers his critics and accusers or, or just neutral bystanders. What would we have thought? What would we have felt? Disgust? Shame? Confusion? Pity? Hopelessness? Distress? Fear? It's good for us 
to identify with these people as they observe this moment. It is the depth of despair here that makes the third day so profoundly precious. It's coming face to face with the, the very worst outcome that makes his resurrection so, so sweet. So right here, right now, I just, I just want us to stay there for a, a moment. I'm going to pray, and if we can just dwell here for a moment, close your eyes, put your hands out, imagine yourself. You're standing on the ground. You're looking up at the cross. You can see Jesus there. You can see his face. You can see his hands stretched out, blood dripping down his whole body. You can see him struggling to stay standing on that small platform with the nail through his feet. You can see some soldiers. They're still haggling over his clothes. They've got a, a jar of sour wine and, and a, a stick with hyssop and, and they've just given him something to drink. The scene is dreadful. The, the, the sky has gone dark for the last three hours. There's crying and weeping all around. There's jeering from others. There's, there's stories that strange things have been happening in the temple. Just imagine yourself there. What are you thinking? How do you feel? Are you his follower? Are you his accuser, a critic? Are you an innocent bystander? What do you think when he shouts out in a loud voice, it is finished, the mission is complete, I have done what I came to do. All is as it is required to be. Lord, as we sit at the foot of the cross, watching you in this moment, Lord, I pray that you work in our hearts and our minds. You give us a renewed understanding of what you went through to buy us our freedom. You give us a renewed understanding of what it means to, to be victorious in your kingdom. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what did... Jesus actually mean when he said it is finished? What was this mission? In a nutshell, before the world was created, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in perfect communion, and they agreed on a mission for the Son, that he would be written into the creation, that he would become part of that creation story that they had written together, and he would be part of it fully, that he would be fully man. And at the same time, he would remain divine fully, that he would remain fully God and that he would live a life in history, in human history, that would 
not just be a shining light for all eternity for those that look back at it in history, but would be a moment in the future for all the prophets that anticipated the coming of the Messiah, a shining light for all before him to look at and a shining light for all after him to look at, that the sun would undo the work of Satan and render sin and death powerless. That was the mission. And when Jesus took on the sin of the world and darkness fell and God's presence had to depart from him because all sin was upon him, he paid the price for it in his death. In that last breath, he accomplished that mission. It wasn't on the third day, on the resurrection, that he won. It was on the cross. Sin and death were killed on the cross of Calvary. That was where the transaction took place. As Jesus died, sin and death died. Sin and death were killed on the cross of Calvary. But you can rightly look at me and say, but Jeremy, sin is still alive and well in the world we live in. And, and people die every day. Just look at the situation we're in right now. We see the effect of it all the time. So I'm not sure that what you're saying is, is true. And that kind of thinking was what was bothering the people watching him die. That exact kind of thinking. They were awaiting a Messiah who would deliver the Jewish people from the dishonor of being ruled by a pagan, sinful nation, from the suffering, from the pain and the death imposed on them by the Romans. They were expecting a king who would deliver them from this worldly oppressor. But Jesus had a far bigger mission in mind than to deliver a single nation from another nation. His kingdom would not be temporary, but would last forever. And it would not be made up of one nation, but of all people. So while they were expecting him to start a revolt against Rome, he was actually crushing a revolt led by Satan. While they were expecting him to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem, he was building a temple out of living stones. While they were expecting him to restore the kingship of David in Israel, he was establishing a kingdom without borders. And sometimes we are caught up in the same thinking. Jesus, deliver us from the effects of sin on our society. Deliver us from sickness and death that steals our quality of life. Deliver us from poverty that restrains us from doing everything that we want to do. Give us the political leader that we want. Make terrorists put down their weapons. End this pandemic. Heal my dad. But what Jesus accomplished was something far greater than these things we often ask for. There's no doubt they are important to us, these things, and that God cares about them, but they are not primary. In the light of eternity, they are small. His concern on the cross was the ultimate consequence of sin and death, not these temporary symptoms. 
like a skilled surgeon. He was going in to cut out the cause of our sickness, not manage the symptoms with paracetamol and ibuprofen. And the ultimate consequence of sin and death is, is, is not well, is, is, is not, not war, is, is not sickness, is, is, is not political turmoil. Those are symptoms. The ultimate consequence of sin and death is eternal separation from a holy God. This is far, far, far worse than any temporary discomfort, any persecution or hunger, or even the physical death of the body. He was going for full-blown reconciliation, the making of peace between God and man, and he accomplished it. He finished it. Our preoccupation with deliverance from temporary inconvenience and pain only exposes that our hearts, like those of those first century Jews, are not really in sync with God's heart. Yet, another symptom of sin. That is what Jesus vanquished at the cross. Not the symptoms, but the ultimate outcome of sin and death. Separation from God. He has forever built reconciliation between God and man. Sin may still flourish. Death may still abound. But it no longer has the power to separate men from God. How amazing is that and all we need to do in return is believe him that's it that is all so while we look at this picture there's there's two things that stand out that that i think we need to be mindful of and and the first one is it is finished means it is finished there is nothing more that can be done. There is nothing that can be added to what was accomplished at the cross. And secondly, very importantly, the presence of sin, the presence of suffering, the presence of death is not evidence of failure. It's not evidence of failure on Christ's part, and it's not evidence of failure on our part. So, as we draw this to a close, for his followers, when you hear the words, it is finished, remember, there is nothing you can do to make it more finished. There is nothing more you need to do to be loved better by God. He loves you as much as he will ever love you. He loves you with the same love that he has for his eternal son, Jesus Christ. When he looks at you now, he sees Jesus Christ and he is delighted with you. You cannot get him to love you any more than he loves you right now. There is nothing more that you need to do. Finished means finished. When Christ took your place on the cross, you took his place in the courts of heaven. Secondly, followers, believers, you are called to be like Jesus in this day and age. And part of being like Jesus 
is to lift up our heads in a joyous victory cry while in the midst of persecution, pain, and suffering. It is in seeming defeat that Christ and his followers find victory over their enemies. So stand up, people, and shout out in victory because the king has won. And because he has won, you stand victorious right here, right now, in the adversity and difficulty that you face. For those of you that are on neutral onlookers or, or critics or accusers, remember this. Christ wasn't about treating the symptoms, but cutting out the cause of a disease which has eternal consequences, not temporary ones. So if you continue to measure his success by what you see in the world around you, you still haven't got it. There is a far more serious consequence to what's going on in the world than temporary suffering, pain and death. A far more serious one of being eternally separated from the God who created you. And he died to reconcile you to that God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. All he asks from you is to look up at that cross and see that he is who he said he was. Believe him and you will be with him in God's presence for all eternity, like the thief that died on his side, or like the centurion that in, his, in Jesus's last breath confessed that he was innocent. So let's just spend a few minutes praying. For those of you that, as you, you heard these words, you, you realize that you've, you've been spending way too much time, believers, that you've been spending way too much time struggling with discontent over the state of your life, the state of the UK, the state of the world. There is no doubt that there's a lot of injustice, a lot of pain, and a lot of suffering in the world, but you realize that you have become preoccupied with that, and it has got between you and God. You, you say that he is victorious, but in your heart, there's, there's a, a wall of, of bitterness, of discontent. I would like, I would like it if, if we could pray together. And we can ask God to, to help you, to lift your eyes again, to look at him on that cross again and remember what it was that he paid for. What a great victory it was that, that he accomplished. And there are, there are others that, that, that as you hear these words, you you know that, that you're an observer, that you're not a follower at this point. And, and part of the reason that you're an observer is, is you look at the Bible, you look at what Christians say about Jesus, and then you look at the world around you and you, you just struggle. You struggle to reconcile the two. And I would like to pray for you tonight as well. 
that the Holy Spirit would come and open your eyes to, to how much greater the reality of the cosmos is than what you already know. And how serious the consequences really are of all of the, the, the depravity that you see in the world around you. So, Lord, as we, as we close this evening, Lord, we, we open our arms and, and at the same time, Lord, we open our hearts. And, and Lord, we ask for you as, as followers that you would help us to remember the great victory that you purchased for us. And Holy Spirit, that you would come and you'd fill our hearts with joy again, that you'd fill our minds with, with the vision of, of not, not Christ dead, but Christ resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all of creation, the one who will return in white robes, the one who is the firstborn of the resurrection, the one that we put all of our hope into. And Lord, I pray that you would restore our joy, that you restore our exuberance and you would restore our energy as we go about your mission and work here on earth. And Lord, for those of us that are, are listening in, we know that we, we are looking in because we just still can't reconcile things. Holy Spirit, I pray that you come and you open you open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the true scope of creation, the true scope of, of your sovereignty and your power over all things and how you orchestrated everything so that you would be glorified and that you would be able to reconcile people to you over history. Lord, I pray that you would surrender people's hearts and that they would yield to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.